Let me invite you to turn your Bibles to the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 1, verse 18, at least the second part of it, through 21. Philippians 1, 18 through 21. Well, let's pray first. Our God, pray now humbly that you would help us to see Christ through these verses and the joy that we have in him, regardless of what happens to us, for he is our life. It is in his name we pray. Amen. Philippians 1, 18 through 21, hear now the word of God. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word, and may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. <clears throat> One of the hymns that we often sing, and it's especially during the offering time, is, Take my life and let it be. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Do you sometimes wonder if you actually believe that? Take my life and let it be consecrated to thee. Take my moments and my days, let them flow with ceaseless praise. Sometimes do you, do you believe that? Ceaseless praise. Not intermittent praise, ceaseless praise. Take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold. Really? Not a mite? Take myself, and I will be ever, only, all for thee. Those are some pretty absolutist terms, aren't they? Are we sure that we believe that? Do we sing that song, and songs like it, with faith? Or are we secretly hoping that we want our lives only partially consecrated to him? Well, there's only one way that you and I will ever be able to sing that song with sincere faith. That is, if we value something, or rather someone, more highly than our very own lives. Well, what if we change the lyrics just a tad and we sang, Take my death and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. And if we're honest, we, we still want to live. We don't want to die. And it is a good desire to want to live. God, the author of life, has given us life, so we desire to live. But we don't, and we don't want to die. We have, we have books to read, of course. We have people to marry, children to have, cats to raise, goals to achieve, and all the rest. We say, oh, sure, we know that we will die one day, yes, but let our death, let its timing, let its manner be determined by us. We pray a prayer to the Lord, I'll be fine, Lord, if I just die in my sleep, holding hands with my beloved. Nothing, you know, nothing too bad now, Lord. That, that'll be enough. Meanwhile, some Christians do not have that 
luxury of a calm death as they are set on fire or they're hacked to pieces or tortured or beheaded? Can those deaths be consecrated to God? Can a calm, peaceful death be consecrated to God? Well, there's only one way that you and I will ever be able to sing with sincere faith, take my death and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. That is, if we value something, or rather someone, more highly than our own deaths, do you want to sing that song with true faith? Of course you do. Do you want to have abundant and unstealable joy? Of course you do. Well, there's only one way, and Paul shows us this way in these powerful verses. The message this morning is that through the petitions of the saints and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, Christians eagerly expect salvation and joyfully honor Christ through their bodies by life or by death. Look again with me at verse 19. He says, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. So Paul is sure of living a life of joy. He is confident of a soon or future deliverance. He's sure of that. And we will turn to those certainties in just a moment. But let us see first the the help that this apostle who is in prison is receiving. Paul says, I know that it will all turn out well for me because of two things. The first is your prayer. The second is the Spirit. Now, you might have just noticed I said your prayer. But you 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 have your eyes glued to the text here, and you say, well, verse 19 says, through your prayers. It's true that the ESV has the plural here, but it's actually singular. It's actually prayer, singular. And the word your is more clear in Greek than it is in English. We say your to speak to one person or more than one person. But here it's plural. So we could summarize that. He has y'all's prayer. Y'all's prayer. That's what he has in mind here. This does not mean that he has a single prayer in mind, of course, as if the Philippians had gathered together and prayed one prayer and told Paul, hey, we prayed a prayer for you. But what what he's getting at here is that there's a unity that the church of Philippi, as united, is coming together in prayer, in fervent prayer, in regular prayer for Paul, just like he's been doing for them. As he mentioned in the beginning of this chapter, in the beginning of his letter, in verse 4, he says, in verse 3 and 4, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. And so he's saying, I'm praying for you, and I need your prayer as well. I need you to pray. He will encourage them in chapter 4, verse 6, to make their requests known to God by prayer and supplication. This is what they've been doing for Paul. In a sense, they have been interceding for their beloved apostle, their brother in the Lord, who is in prison. He's in prison, and they don't want him in prison. They want the gospel to go forth through him. They are thankful that the gospel is not bound as Paul is bound, but they know the beautiful work of Paul the apostle. They know how beautiful his feet are because he, with his feet, is bringing good news. 
And he wants, and they want him to keep going. And so they're interceding for him. Again, you can picture them in a house church assembled with heads bowed or, or maybe heads raised. There are different postures of prayer, but it's in fervent prayer. So how often have we seen already the value of prayer in just this first chapter? This short letter is full of exhortations to pray, full of reminders of praying for one another. One man says that this might even be the strongest exhortation for us to see the efficacy and the good of prayer, how effective prayer is, how good and needful prayer is. So Paul's saying, I am depending on all of you for your united, frequent, fervent prayer for me. Pray. Keep praying. Keep praying. Don't stop praying. I need your prayers every moment of the day. Pray without ceasing. And so Paul assures them and us that these prayers go somewhere. They don't bounce off a wall. They don't hit the ceiling. They go somewhere. They go right upward to the throne of grace through the Spirit of Jesus, through the power, the mediation of the Holy Spirit of Christ. This Spirit of Jesus is that same Holy Spirit as he is called in Acts 16, 6 and 7, which I read just a little bit ago, the one who prevented Paul to visit one area, but then also moved Paul to visit Philippi. The Philippians have known the powerful ministry of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. It began with prayer. It began with the Spirit of Jesus. And Paul says that when they pray for him, he will receive the help of the Spirit of Jesus. And this word help is interesting. It's very, there's a lot of imagery to this word. And it's used only two other times by Paul in Ephesians 4.16. He used this word to say that the church is held together by every joint with which it is equipped So the word equipped in Ephesians 4.16 is our word for help. And in Colossians 2.19, it says that the church body is nourished and knit together through joints and ligaments, and so it grows with the growth that comes from God. The word nourished there is our word in Philippians for help. So we have help, we have equipment, we have nourishment. These three words, the idea here is that there is All of the supply, all the supplies that we need for any given task, in this case, the task of the Lord, spreading the gospel, this, all that we need is provided by the Spirit of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, the life that nourishes the church body, the joints and ligaments that bind the church together. All of these are from the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ, the third person of the Trinity. The Philippians' united petition for Paul's deliverance is joined with Jesus' spirit. Paul was in great need, and this great need called for great power. And there's no power like the power of the spirit. Sinclair Ferguson says, he reserves the best of his gifts for the time of our greatest need. He reserves the best of his gifts for the time of our greatest need. And the Father, the Son, that give the Spirit of Jesus to the Philippians that they might pray for Paul. We saints are abundantly supplied when we have 
the spirit-mediated prayers of our brothers and sisters. We have all that we need in Christ. And we have the Spirit. Beloved, know your own weaknesses. Know your struggles. Know your own temptations. And share those with someone who is trustworthy. This does not mean just go ahead and reveal all of your stuff to anyone. That's not wise. Paul is, we see here that one application is that we should be vulnerable with one another. The problem with vulnerability, just by the, the meaning of its own, of the, of the word, is we're open to, be, open to being wounded. Our own vulnerability can be used against us. Have you ever opened up to someone and that person did not um, take good care of that information you gave them and then use it against you? Hurts, doesn't it? Is the answer then never to share anything? Of course not. And we see here Paul setting an example, saying, pray for me. He doesn't go into all the details for the Philippians, all of his sin struggles, but he tells them that he needs their prayer. And he's just following the, the way of the Savior, Jesus Christ, who had no sin but said to his disciples, pray. Identify someone. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe, well, it ought to be your spouse if you're married. Maybe it's a good friend, a pastor, an elder, someone with whom you can share and then entrust your own weaknesses, struggles, temptations to them. If Paul depended on the prayers of his fellow brothers and sisters, surely we must. If Paul needed the prayers of these Philippian saints for his sanctification, surely we need the prayers of one another for our own growth. So on the one hand, we need to share. We need to divulge wisely to those who are worthy of our trust. And that, of course, takes time. But you also have to do some investigation. That is to say, you have to know one another. You literally have to know each other. You cannot view each other as strangers. So you have to know the trying circumstances of your brothers and sisters. How can you pray for them if you don't know your brother or sister? How can you put them in a position where they can share with you what's going on in their lives, the heartaches, if you don't know them, if they don't know you? We shouldn't expect people just to open up and just share all of their stuff right away. A good brother or sister in the Lord reaches out, moves towards brothers and sisters. There are many opportunities to do that even here. Go to ABF. Go to men's Bible study, women's Bible study. Go to our prayer gathering that meets 9 o'clock in the morning on Sundays. Go to a covenant group. Attend morning worship. Attend evening worship. Hear the hearts of your brothers and sisters. Hear the kinds of things that we are praying for. Know the circumstances. Know the people. Why? So that you can pray. 
Beloved, do not shortchange your brothers and sisters in the Lord. You're actually doing them, we're doing one another a disservice by not knowing one another, acting as if people don't need our prayers. Do we really believe in the efficacy, in the power, the good of prayer? Of course we do. You do know that the world, the flesh, and the devil all wage war against you and against your brother and sister. They need your prayers too. Just as you depend upon them for the prayers, they depend upon you. We all depend on one another for prayers. Do you want our love, as Paul has prayed, to abound more and more? Do you want our love to abound more and more for one another? Or are you okay with how things are? Do you as a congregation want to grow in love with one another? I'll accept a verbal answer. Okay. Do you want to grow in knowledge and all discernment? Okay. Amen. I also want to grow in these things. I'm going to hit you with a quote right now. It's controversial. And you might feel an ouch. I felt an ouch. Notice this is not coming from a legalistic spirit, but it is provocative here in the good sense. David Strain, PC a pastor, in his commentary on Philippians says this, I think Paul would say that attendance at the prayer meeting is a good barometer of the love of the members of the local church for one another, as well as the spiritual temperature of the congregation as a whole. I know, that's an ouch, isn't it? When I read that, I said, ooh, Pastor Strain, come on now. That's, we'll get like five people in the prayer gathering on Sunday mornings. We could have more. Should we just say, oh, he's just, I don't know what he's doing. Crazy old PCA pastor, doesn't know what he's talking about. You know, this actually wouldn't have been controversial 30, 40 years ago, okay? Sometimes we bemoan how uh, things have happened in the world. The, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. Sometimes we bemoan that, we lament that, we ought to. And yes, there are sinful hearts, there are hearts that have not been born again that are doing those things and are sending the, the world in a wrong trajectory. But we are also complicit, beloved. The church, in general, is also complicit. And that we need to be better prayers. We need to be more fervent in our prayers. We need to put our mouths where, not our money is, uh, where we believe. What we believe. We believe in prayer. We're not going to be legalistic here and say, well, if you're not going to the prayer gathering before church, then you're not a true believer or that you're somehow less than. Of course not. That's, that's, a, that's binding your conscience unjustly. But we see through this quote and through Paul's words here that an encouragement. We should be praying, and not just praying individually, but praying corporately. Again, do we want to have more and more joy in our hearts? Yes. Do we want to have more contentment with Christ? Do we want more unity with one another? Humility, harmony with one another, wisdom from God, peace from God, revival in this church, in this city. Do we want all of those things? Of course we do. And we have absolutely zero reason to expect any of these beautiful blessings if we neglect the very means that God has provided 
for them. Can God give us these blessings if we don't use his means? Yes, because he is a gracious God. He's merciful to us, and he has time and again blessed us, even when we have not asked for a blessing. What then should we expect when we use the things that he tells us to use? When he says, prayer is a means of grace, do it often. The word of God is a means of grace. It's God speaking to you. Read it, apply it, reflect on it, share it. The sacrament, the Lord's Supper, is a means of grace for your spiritual growth. Avail yourself of it. We have these means of grace. We, we have every reason because God has given us them. We have every reason to expect that in God's timing, as we avail ourselves of the means of grace, God blesses in his way, in his timing. We ought to have this eager expectation. What then does Paul expect to gain from these spirit prayers? Look at verse 20, the first part of it. He says, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed. And so just in verse 19, he says that he knows that this will turn out for his deliverance. Literally, the word there is salvation. And now he speaks in verse 20 of expecting eagerly of not being ashamed. And here he's actually quoting Job 13, 16, something I read earlier today. This will be my salvation, that the godless shall not come before him. And Job is saying, I am innocent of all these charges that are leveled against me. Yes, God may slay me, but I will always hope in him. And I know that as one of his godly children, I will come before his face and that the godless will not. He's confident of that. What this means is he's confident that one day he will be vindicated by God himself, the judge of all the earth who always does right. He will be vindicated before the judgment seat of God, not really before human judges. But now we turn to Paul, and we remember that Paul is in prison with accusations awaiting a judgment. We also remember that some preach Christ from pretense, but Paul and others preach Christ from love and goodwill. And it's likely, I think, that Paul has in mind both temporal and eternal judgments. The commentators are split on what Paul means when he says he's not going to be ashamed, he's going to, he's going to have his deliverance. Some say he, Paul only has in mind that he's going to be delivered from Roman prison, and then he's going to carry on with the gospel ministry. And others say, no, he doesn't have that in mind at all. He actually has in mind the, his eternal judgment. And how he, because he's in Christ, is not only innocent, but righteous. And so one day, he will, that, that vindication will be seen. It's both. That's my contention. It's both. Paul seems pretty confident that he will be released from prison. Although he's not staking all of his confidence in a future release. He's confident that whether he is released from prison or not... He will be ultimately delivered by God. Because remember in verse 10, he, like the Philippians, is blameless. And so he's confident that he will be released to carry on with the gospel ministry. But even if he is wrong, he's saying, he's absolutely certain that he will be vindicated eventually. 
He expects with eager expectation not being ashamed. And this language of eager expectation is used only one other time, and that by Paul himself in Romans 8.19. It says, The creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. The whole creation is eagerly expecting the future, the soon revealing of the sons of God. Paul and the whole creation and all of us together can eagerly expect our own vindication. With David and Paul, all of us can say to God, the good shepherd, you, good shepherd of the sheep, prepare a table before us in the presence of our enemies. David was certain of his own vindication. Not because of any thing that he had done, not because he was that awesome of a servant of the Lord, but because he is following uh, the Lord who saved him. Because of the Lord, because of the Lord's grace, because of the Lord's righteousness given to him. That is the only ground ultimately to stand on. If you want to be assured of your own deliverance, it's because of Christ. It's because of his righteousness, because of what he has done, because how he has paid the penalty. Because he not only died on the cross, but was raised from the dead for our justification, as Paul says in Romans 4. His resurrection leads to our raising, our vindication, our justification. But it's more than that, Paul says. Not only will Paul not be ashamed, but Christ will definitely be honored with Paul's life. At the end of verse 20, he says, But that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. And this word for honor has the mega as a prefix. We know the word mega. That's carried over in English. We think of perhaps a mega church. Mega church is a church that's pretty big, probably hundreds of people. This word can mean to make large, to make great, to magnify, to esteem greatly. Jesus uses this word negatively in Matthew 23, verse 5, to speak of how the Pharisees who desire to be seen by men make their garment tassels, their fringes long, make them great. Mary uses this word in her prayer in Luke 1.46, when she prays to, to God, my soul magnifies the Lord. In Acts 10.46, this word is used to speak of extolling God, praising God highly because he is worthy of all glory, laud, and honor, as we sing this morning. But interestingly, this word is used by Paul in 2 Corinthians 10.15. And in that passage, he expresses a prayer that as the Corinthians' faith increases, his area of influence among them may greatly be enlarged as well. So there's a one-to-one correspondence. The people he's ministering to, they have faith, and that increases. And because he's ministering to them, as their faith increases, his influence, good influence, his apostolic influence, is greatly enlarged as well, which is what we want. And this is what Paul was getting at here in Philippians. He wants all of his life, his living or his dying, and everything in between to be of great use to the church for the exaltation of Christ, for the honoring of Christ, honoring in his body, whether by life or by death. And Ferguson says that whenever it becomes clear that we count Christ greater than ourselves, he is honored. We always should count Christ greater than ourselves because he always is greater than we ourselves, isn't he? 
And the certainty of our future deliverance assures our Christ-honoring living. That's the application point here for this section, that the certainty of our future deliverance assures our present-day Christ-honoring living. Beloved, you can face whatever trial the Lord sends your way, however hard, however soft it might be, you can face that because you will be delivered. You know the end of the story, don't you? You have the first fruits of the story, the resurrection of Christ, and you know that you get a body like his. That death will not have the last say. You can mock death as Paul does in 1 Corinthians 15. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? You can do that with faith because you too will be delivered if you're in Christ. You might be delivered from that particular trial through God's ordinary work of providence as he has done countless times. How many trials just in the last week, probably small trials, has God delivered you from? And even a sickness is a trial. A conflict with someone that sought resolution is a trial. How many of those in the last month has God delivered you from? Just through the ordinary work of providence, just through the the ordinary means of grace, his own word, how many has he delivered you from? Take some time. Think about that. Or he might bless you with deliverance from that trial through your own physical death. It happens. In fact, we're being fools if we think that we're not going to die. Either way, you will be delivered. So, beloved, pray. Worry not about your life. Instead, focus on the kingdom of God and his righteousness. You will not be ashamed because you have, even now, the perfect righteousness of Christ with bloody but blinding refulgence as the Son of Righteousness smiles upon you even now. Amen. Not the end of the sermon, though. Not everything that looks bad is bad. I recently watched something pretty strange. There's a town in which people, men, women, and children, were throwing puffins off of cliffs. Puffins. If you don't know what a puffin is, watch the movie Elf. There's an Arctic puffin. Can't pick snowberries with elf at the time. So we got puffins, okay? But here we have people chucking puffins off of cliffs. Where's this happening? Iceland. During puffling season. Yes, it's a puffling season. People find baby puffins away from the ocean. They scoop them up and they chuck them off of cliffs or shorelines. Why do they do that? That seems so cruel, doesn't it? Is this some Icelandic version of baseball? Some modified version of cornhole? It'd be nice if it were. But no, it isn't. In late summer, baby puffins, are they, they head out to the ocean. They spend a few years before returning to land to find a mate. And to find the ocean, they use the light of the moon as a guide. But those blasted city lights, they can confuse the puffins and lead the puffins astray and they're caught on land and they don't know how to get back. And if they're left on land, they will die without ever having known puffin marriage. (laughs) 
without being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth with other puffins. And so during this time, people are on puffling patrol. Sounds like Paw Patrol, I know, but it's puffling patrol. You've got search teams. They're searching the puffins, they scoop them up, and they cast them back to the ocean. Why? To set them back on course. To redirect them. So by throwing these cute little things, the people are actually saving the little creatures. It looked bad. It looked like they were some mean, nasty, Icelandic people just hurting little puffins. But actually, it was for their deliverance. I say that to say that we need to reorient our own interpretation of our experience, our own interpretation of the suffering that we experience. I don't say you should be asking for more and more affliction. We have enough. We get a lot. And there are seasons of significant pain and seasons in which we know loss, and it's just one loss after another. Physical loss, relational loss, reputation loss, whatever it is, just one loss after another. And so we're not going out looking for more. But we need to look rightly at our own experience, at our own trials. Can we say with Charles Spurgeon, I have learned to kiss the wave that slams me into the rock of ages. It slams you into the throne of grace, doesn't it? Brings you to the throne of grace, pleading with, through prayer for the provision of the Spirit of Jesus. Can we say with John Calvin, all things, all things contribute to the advantage of God's true worshipers, even though the whole world with the devil and its prince should conspire together for their ruin. Again, the flesh, the world, and the devil, they are against you. They want your ruin. And God, as infinitely wise as he is, is using all of that evil, all of that pain, not for your ruin, but for your restoration, for your own deliverance, that you would know him and that you would grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And because of this, because all of this leads ultimately to our deliverance, we can believe that we are committed to the joy of Christ. We are committed to the joy of Christ. Verse 18, he says, yes, and I will rejoice. So we read here of Paul's commitment to joy in this verse. He just said, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I will rejoice. And now he says, yes, and I will rejoice. But the Greek is actually this. It's, but I will also rejoice. Not and, and I will, or yes, and I will rejoice, but I will also rejoice. There's, this is a contrast here, actually. This is important. Because it's not like Paul is approving of the motives that he had just mentioned, the motives of envy, of rivalry, insincerity, selfish ambition, all aimed at his affliction. No, those aren't godly motives. He puts forward, we prefer the motives of love and goodwill when it comes to the proclamation of Christ. But Paul is saying is that even though we may be tempted not to rejoice because of this, we still can rejoice because Christ is still being proclaimed. The gospel is still going out. People are being delivered from the domain of darkness and being brought into the kingdom of light. 
Beloved, as we saw last week, when we keep in mind the main thing, we can rejoice. Our joy-filled life, because of Christ, is also given to Christ. And so we return to the hymn, Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Or take my death and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Verse 21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. To live is Christ. Such beautiful simplicity, which is also emphatic here in the Greek. He says, for to me, I'm talking about myself. Yes, I want this for you as well, but for me, he's owning it for himself. To live is Christ. As long as I live, I live because of Christ. I live by means of Christ. I live in Christ. I live for Christ. All of my life, Christ. If I am in prison, living means Christ is with me. Living means that I will expend all of my energy in joyful service to Christ who is my Savior, who is my life, who is my all in all. And if I ever get out of prison, if I ever move, out, move, move about again, it will be because I live and move and have my being from Christ. And so all of my movements are for Christ, for the glory of Christ. To live is Christ. And we would expect him to say, but to die is loss. That's not the apostolic equation that he's putting before us. To die is gain. If I stop living, he says, even when I die, I do not lose, but I gain. We'll talk soon about Paul's win-win dilemma in the coming verses. It's all win for him. But here, to die is gain. This word for gain, he uses two other places in Titus 1.11. He says, those of the circumcision party in Crete needed to be silenced because they were upsetting whole families for the sake of shameful gain. They sought gain for themselves at the expense of the flock of Christ. Very similar to his rebuke of those men who are preaching from selfish ambition. And Paul, by contrast, with his death, will seek gain of being with Christ. He will seek uh, with his death the gain of being with Christ. In Philippians 3, 7, he says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. The gain he's speaking of was his former way of living, his former pharisaical living, which really wasn't life. It was actually death. All that gain, all that living for supposed righteousness, all of it, Paul says, is actually a loss. It's not a gain. Because I wasn't living for Christ. In fact, I was diametrically opposed to him. Though I thought I was being zealous for God, I was hotly pursuing Christ, persecuting Christ with all of my living. And he went up the ranks We'll talk about that when we get to Philippians 3, but he was the best of the best when it came to religious but not regenerative work. He was religious, but he, didn't, he was not born again. All of that living was death. It was a loss. But giving up his life in death for Christ is the greatest gain. As he'll say in verse 23, to die means to be brought into the presence of Christ. 
No sooner do you die, beloved, than you enter the blessed presence of Christ, which is far better. Which is why he's saying to to die is gain. You die, and then you gain the blessed presence of Jesus Christ. Our own shorter catechism, 37, summarizes for us four benefits, four gains of our deaths in Christ. Just briefly here, the first is that our souls are made perfect in holiness. Our souls are made perfect in holiness. Now, last, uh, yesterday at uh, Men's Bible Study, we were talking briefly about what, what a day that will be when we are no longer sinning. The, there's an error out there. It's called sin, sinless perfectionism. And it says that you can be perfect this side of heaven, that you can actually not sin, that you can be so perfect you don't have any sin. And oh boy, that sounds alluring, doesn't it? That sounds like, if that's achievable on this side of heaven, I'm going to go after it. And 1 John says, no. If you say you're without sin, you're calling God a liar. You're a liar. But we were for the most part, kind of just silently reflecting on how glorious that will be when, when we are made perfect in holiness. No more sin. No more lack of love. No more irritability. No more insisting on our own way. No more impatience. And I remember a part of what Machen had said. We're going through Christian liberalism, and, and Machen says that our one of the reasons we can't wait to get to heaven is not really for our sake, but for God's sake, for our worship of him. Because right now, our hearts are so cold towards him. Our love for him is so weak. They're not, our hearts are not fully affectionate towards him. We don't worship him as we ought. We don't, we don't love him as we ought. Beloved, that, that goes away when you die. What a gain. You're no longer going to be hindered by that sin that so easily clings to you. Your spirits are made perfect in holiness, that you might worship your God perfectly. What a gain at our death. The second benefit is that our souls immediately pass into glory. They immediately pass into glory. And we'll talk about this next week as well, but there's no soul sleep here. There's, there's no time when you're not conscious of being in the presence of the Lord. Again, no sooner do you depart than you are with Christ. And death is the passageway into the heavenly glorious city. God God brings us to himself through death, no longer as a punishment, but as a pathway to his son, our Savior. I don't remember what the hymn was, I think it's a contemporary hymn, but it's, it is not death to die. It is not death to die. It's a gain. The third benefit is that our bodies remain united to Christ in their graves. Our spirits are made perfect in holiness. Our bodies, even in the grave, whatever form they're taking, are still united to Christ. Christ is still committed, not just to your soul, but to your body. Because it is that that he will Reclaim. It is that that he will raise from the dead. 
because you were created with a spirit and a body. You are embodied spirits. And he will not cast those off. Your bodies were created by God, and they are precious to him. And so they remain united to him in their graves. And fourth, our bodies will not remain there, but they await the resurrection. Again, Christ's resurrection being the first fruits of the dead. Beloved, saints are committed to a life of joy, whatever our God ordains. People can steal your thunder, but they cannot steal your joy. You can have joy in whatever circumstances, whether you are living or whether you are dying, because you have Christ, or rather, because he has you. And he is your joy. Ferguson says, joy in Christ was Paul's birthright as a Christian. It's our birthright. As we are born again, new creatures in Christ, we get with that eternal joy. The joy of the Lord is in us. Because Christ is in us. Because the Spirit one of whose fruits is joy, is indwelling us. It is ours. Let us always cling to this joy of Christ. And when you come here, beloved, be committed to joy. Yes, of course, be committed to joy Monday through Saturday. Always be committed to joy. You come here every Lord's Day, be committed to joy. This does not mean that you must ignore your sins that grieve you. You should mourn those sins, You should grieve the sins that you commit against God, first and foremost, and against one another. But you can still be joyful because Christ has covered all of that. Christ has paid the penalty for your sin. This doesn't mean that you suddenly deny your present affliction, your hard-to-ignore pain, that suffering that will not stop. But it means that you can cry out with faith, with hope, knowing that this is temporary. This present affliction is light and momentary, and it does not even compare to the eternal weight of glory that you have in Christ. This doesn't mean that you forget about the people that used to worship with you here. You're allowed to grieve over that. You're allowed to have heartaches over the people that were sitting just a foot away from you month ago, two months ago, three months ago. And it hurts. But it does mean is that what we're doing here is something much bigger. Why are we coming every single Lord's Day? We're coming to worship our God. If that means it's, it's me and my family, if that means it's, it's just you Nobody else. Or if it's just me, just preaching, there's joy. There's joy. It's worship. We're worshiping our God. Our God who, who could have left us in our sin, who could have left us dead in our trespasses and sins, but said, no, I'll be victorious over this, and I will send my son to live, die, and rise from the dead for him, for her. 
and give them my spirit, that they might have joy, everlasting joy, abundant joy, from this time forth forevermore. It means that God, it means that we know that God is working out all of our trials for his glory and our good. It means that even our living right now is Christ. And whenever he takes us home, and yes, he will take us home, it'll be the greatest gain we've ever known. Brothers and sisters, comfort one another with these words. Amen. Let's pray. Oh God, our Father in heaven, help us now by your Spirit not to misuse or profane your holy teaching by wrongly interpreting its meaning or by neglecting its application. Instead, may this holy teaching build us up in the faith of Jesus Christ so that we may always abide in him and be diligent in prayer and supplication. May our whole life, Father, be devoted to doing good and to helping our brothers and sisters with the goal of learning to grow more and more in the grace and knowledge of our God, of the adoption which you, O God, daily confirm to us. We pray these things, Father, in the name of your only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, who is our joy. Amen.